0: Up in the morning, love,
1: and the sunlight hurts my eyes, and something without warning, love, bears heavy on my mind. Then I look at you, and the world's all
0: right. I know it's going to be. Welcome to WNN HHFM's 103.5 Just in Time Conversations. I'm your host, Justin Farmer, uh, inviting you to be in community with us in conversations about ideas that matter of people making a difference. Uh, Today, our guest is Kathy Flaherty, uh, good friend of mine uh, and uh, is the director of uh, the Legal Rights Project. Connecticut Legal Rights Project. I I am so excited. Uh, I know for some time, we've been back and forth uh, about having you. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, happy election day. No one's gonna tell you how to vote, but you should probably go and vote. Um, so thank you, Kathy, for for being with us. Um, you know, I, I like to start the segment with hot takes, right? Um, so last week, uh, we had Steve here and he, you know, was talking, his hot take was, you know, soul music, like the new songs, like without the spiritual connection, like singing song-ready people, like their songs just aren't as powerful, right? Um, and I was like, yeah, that's a hot take, you know, I, I kind of agree. Um, in the past I've said like, cars are tourist infrastructure, it shouldn't exist. So, you know, just so people can kind of get a flavor of who Kathy Flaherty is, what's the hot take that you have?
1: Uh, Well, the easy hot take is pineapple does belong on pizza. Um, But I I think the other hot take, uh, particularly for the conversation we're going to have today is I think people should recognize psychiatric institutions as carceral institutions.
0: Mm-hmm. I, am, I am a firm believer of pineapple on pizza. So I am glad that we share that and we are speaking that into existence, and that uh the haters can be put on notice. Um, and I um uh, I definitely appreciate sharing uh, uh you know uh, the idea right that these are cultural solutions when we remove people right like the when we are creating restrictive environments, people with disabilities are always harmed. And so, um, I'm sure as we talk, we'll get into it. But I, as a person with neurological disorders, there have been times where I, um, the way that our healthcare system treats some of those ailments is to remove people from community. And, and so, uh, I can only imagine, you know. A couple of hours versus days, months, years being removed from your community—how destructive that could be. So, right, right on the money. Uh, so, you I, ask
1: for hot take. I come in with fire. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> if only I can drop fire emojis. Uh, so, Kathy, you know, thank you so much for coming on. Well, you know, how did you? come into being a lawyer and come into the law, right? Because I I think, at least for me, there are so many people that I know that come into, um, come into the law, right, that have big, grand ideas, and there's so many people that I know, they're like, I'm just waiting for my student loans to be paid off, so I no longer have to be a lawyer, right? Um, and at least as far as I've known you, right? Um, there's always been a fervor and excitement about the law. So, like, how did you discover that? And like, how, what keeps you in the law?
1: That is a great question, Justin. Um, actually, I am not somebody who's known since they were seven uh, that they wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, I have some of my best friends are people like that. Um, I'm sure if you talk to my mom, she might say, like, I had the signs of uh, being a lawyer at some point, because I would argue with her about things or or challenge why I was being told to do things. But the reality is the reason I ended up at law school is because I suffered with depression and anxiety in college. I was actually a biochemistry major. Um, I thought I was going to be a research scientist. Um, and... What happened my senior year of college is I got so depressed and anxious that I literally could not walk into the science center. And I would stay in bed and not be able to get out. Or if I did, I barely could walk into the building. And I was supposed to be doing a lab and a thesis and it got to the point where I started seeing a counselor at school And she suggested to me, why don't you just drop this thesis that is causing you so much stress and took me a bit of time to be able to even wrap my head around that concept that it was okay to drop something um, in school. But then it became untenable. So I did. Um, And I needed classes to graduate on time uh, and I took a class on the anthropology of law and justice and I took a, a class about criminal justice and I thought they were incredibly interesting. Um, I also was graduating from law school. I mean, from college in the late 80s. And at that point, if you really weren't quite sure of what you were going to do, you either went into investment banking or you went to law school. And I knew I didn't want to be a banker. So that's how I ended up going to law school. Um, I ended up I went into law school wanting to be a legal aid lawyer, and I'm very fortunate that I went to a school with a loan repayment program, so I could afford to do that. Um, and I, if I were working at a big law firm, I think I and big law in quotes, um, I think I would have been one of those people that I can't wait to stop doing this. Um, I mm-hmm. did not enjoy that environment, but I have found um, a community. Uh, within legal aid in which I can do work that matters to me that I also believe helps other people. Um, And I I do love what I do. No, I work with with a fantastic team. I'm blessed to be able to have a bunch of fantastic uh, attorneys and paralegal advocates and um, other folks who work in our office on behalf of you know, some of the most marginalized people in the state of Connecticut, people who are stuck in DEMIS-operated institutions where you did mention people spend years separated from their communities and from their loved ones um, and people who uh, face barriers and discrimination in the outside community because they live with a mental health condition. You
0: know, I I thank you for sharing that. I never knew that you wanted to be a scientist. So I, <laughs> I, uh, it is a different science once you uh, uh, dig into the law, though. Uh,
1: <laughs> Indeed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess a, a question I didn't uh, to 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 jump off of that. Um, to younger people who are coming into the law, you know what are some of the tips, tricks of like creating healthy boundaries? Um, Cause I, I feel like corporate law, right? It's easier to be like the boundary is I'm paid for this. Yeah, like someone's gonna ride me to get timelines done, but I'm making six figures versus, you know, when you're taking on the trauma and stress of people who are first in need uh, in destitute situations, how have you been able to, you know, find the time to remove yourself, to take care of yourself? To <laughs>
1: That's a great question. Um, one assumes that I actually do those things, um, but I guess I must do it enough to be able to still be doing, doing the work. Um, and it's hard uh, for, your guests who may not know me is like, I'm not only a lawyer who represents people with psychiatric disabilities, I'm a lawyer who lives in recovery from being labeled with a mental health condition. Um, And I do have physical disabilities at this point, too, thanks to COVID. Um, Mm. So in some ways, the disability advocacy is not just a you know, nine to five, nine to six, eight to six job, you know, it's really 24, seven, 365. Um, but if I were talking to a younger person who's considering a career in law, um, sure. be aware that there's a process you have to get through. And, and I am finding myself questioning a lot of, what the expectations are, like the ways in which we gatekeep our profession, um, you know, because it'd be really easy to say, oh, get good grades in school, you know, do well on the LSAT, you know, apply to a, apply to schools, you know, go wherever, work really hard, get really good grades, get a clerkship, do all those things. Um, I think for me. You know, one of the, one of the things that happened to me in law school, you know, I was already talking about how I, I struggled with depression and anxiety in college. In my first year, my first, first year of law school, I ended up in a psychiatric facility. Um, and, you know, we started school at the end of August. By October 11th, I was put in an ambulance and dr- driven to um, an inpatient psychiatric facility where I ended mm-hmm. up spending the next two months. Um had to go on a forced medical leave for the remainder of the year. And when I came back to school, for me personally, I'm like, get me out of here with my degree. You know, I don't care about my grades, which was the first time in my life that I felt that way. Um, I think in some ways there was probably a privilege in that because I knew I didn't wanna do a clerkship. I knew I didn't wanna work at a corporate law firm. And like, if I really wanted to do those things, I was foreclosing myself from that possibility, but Mm -hmm. I didn't wanna do those things. Um, And I knew what I wanted to do. You know, I was able to take clinical classes where I got some practical experience in representing people um and made it through law school but law school is is tough there are people who who love the intellectual exercise of law school um love the competitive environment and you know the socratic method and there are people who thrive in that environment i was not one of those people um i just wasn't uh but I graduated and, you know, I eventually passed the bar. I eventually got admitted to the bar. um, Although that was its own adventure, at least in this state. Um, And I've been able to have a a fantastic career with the help and support of a lot of great people.
0: No, no, I, 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 again, I thank you for that. As someone who is not neurotypical, having OCD, having Tourette's, Um, uh, you know, the, there's a book called The Strongest Librarian, and and so there's this guy who has Tourette's, pretty severe, a lot of motor tics, um, and, you know, through my journey of doing higher education and figuring out, I remember this man, like, writing that it took him, like, 10, 12 years to get his degree, right, and, like, he wanted to be a librarian. Um, And like, that was his thing, right? Like he knew he wanted to do this thing and he took the time. And once he got through the education, right? He was the person for the job, right? And so I think sometimes being able to share those stories with people to let them know, like, listen, some of these environments are not made for us. But once we get through the other side, right? We can do the good work. Uh, uh, so, you know, I, I think so, you know, I did my due diligence and I went on the website and I was reading about you, right? And so I am on many boards and commissions. And so um, from a younger age being put on boards and commissions, it's always been a learning experience to like be in those environments. And so, I guess, how did you land at CLRP? Um, what was it like to be on the board versus working for the organization?
1: That is a good and interesting question. Um, and I, I, I like it. And I, I was trying to figure out where that question was coming from when you sent it to me in advance. But how I ended up at CLRP the first time was, after I went back to law school for my second first year, I was applying to various um, organizations in Connecticut for a summer position. And I was very open about my experience of being a patient in a psychiatric hospital. For better, for worse, I probably didn't think that through very well, but it was it's just the way I am. you know, and I and my theory always was, If somebody doesn't want me to work for them because of this, it's probably not a place where I'd want to work anyway. So we'll figure out how to make that work. Um, And I interviewed at a a local organization and disclosed that experience. And it turns out that CLRP had just been formed the year before. And this attorney said, "I'd, I'd hire you we'd love to have you, but I actually think you'd like working for this other organization more. And he literally took out the legal aid directory, photocopied the page for CLRP and handed it to me. And so I gave them a call and that's where I worked after my first year of law school. Um, And that was the summer of 92. And I was involved in mental health advocacy in Connecticut. Um, I was part of the different, uh, what they called, and I think maybe still call, um, not a word that I love, but consumer programs, consumer education programs for NAMI Connecticut, like the In Our Own Voice program and Parents and Teachers as Allies and all those sort of things. And I was on that state board. Uh, but then I was invited to join the CLRP board because I was also a legal aid attorney. And I, and I served on the board. I think. My remembrance of like when I first started getting on boards and councils and everything else was trying to figure out how they worked, in all honesty. Um, (laughs) And, you know, what role was I supposed to play on those things? Um, And probably spent a lot of time at the beginning. Being quiet and just kind of paying attention to what other people are saying or doing and, and then you start asking questions like why are we doing it this way and then you sometimes you get the sense where people don't want you to be asking those questions but you ask them anyway because you figure that's why you're there. Um, And so it was, it was an interesting experience of seeing that side of governing a nonprofit organization. Um, I was chair of the board for a couple of years because I, I served on it for six. Um, and then I timed off the board. And then a couple of years later, I was actually approached by my predecessor at CLRP if I would consider coming there when she was starting to contemplate retiring. And I said yes, and I'm glad I did. Like, I, I was very nervous about it. Um, I wasn't sure about it and it was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made.
0: I I laugh because I think having a year and so into politics before I really started joining boards and commissions, it helped me go like, oh, I understand what's going on here, (laughs) right? I was like, oh, this is the same it's just different and smaller and like, there's not as many people paying attention, Um, but the inner politics of these boards and commissions, it's always weird where you're getting to learn how to phrase those questions and where to put them and having meeting before the meeting and talking to people. Um, Very informative for me to better understand one-on-ones to like have that opportunity to like, learn from a board member and like understand who they are as a whole person like that's why jonathan hates xyz because tarantulas had always been the issue in their backyard right there's always like that story and you're like oh but you can't have it out in public. so
1: yeah no um, and i i you raised the point of a one-on-one and i think one of the things that i've really appreciated learning at my more advanced age compared to you is the importance of that organizing principle of really building connections um, one-on-one with people and learning about them as people. Because I, I do think there are times when you go to board meetings and you're there for however long the meeting is and then you all leave, but you're not necessarily developing those close relationships with one another as people outside of the organization. And I think the more people who have the opportunities to create those relationships, I think the better off and really frankly more powerful some of those boards and commissions and other groups can be, but people have to invest the time in in building relationship.
0: Absolutely. For those of y'all who are just joining us, you are listening to Just In Time Conversations on WNHH FM 103.5. Uh, I'm your host, Joseph Farmer, our guest, Kathy Flaherty uh, of CLRP, uh, talking about uh, uh, the uh, the different concerns and considerations around serving those with uh uh disabilities and and the law uh so what is clrp for those who don't know what what's the grocery list of things that y'all do
1: sure that's a great question thank you justin connecticut legal rights project is one of the state's legal aid organizations um so we are part of the legal aid network in connecticut and we serve a defined subset of people living in poverty in Connecticut. We serve people who Mm -hmm. are low-income and are eligible for mental health services from the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. The reason why we were established was the result of a consent decree and a lawsuit. Uh, Back in the late 80s, um, the Connecticut Civil Liberties Union, which is now ACLU of Connecticut, brought a suit against what was then the Department of Mental Health, because at that point they were two separate uh, agencies, Department of Mental Health, Department of Addiction Services. And Connecticut Civil Liberties Union brought a lawsuit on behalf of people who were in Connecticut's state operated inpatient psychiatric facilities, saying that the people inside lacked adequate access to the courts and that that was a deprivation of their rights. That case settled and required the Department of Mental Health to provide funding for the establishment of a legal assistance program. And that legal assistance program is CLRP. And that's why we get funding out of a line item in the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services budget. If you you page through the big state budget and you see that line for legal services in the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services budget, That's not for legal services to DEMAS. It's for legal services to DEMAS clients. And that is part of our funding. Um, And then the other part of our funding is through the Connecticut Bar Foundation, which funds all the legal aid programs in Connecticut uh, in different amounts. Uh, And then we do, you know, we can get money from attorney's fees and cases, donations, things like that. Uh, But we are headquartered at Connecticut Valley Hospital, because as part of that consent decree, DEMAS has to provide us office space, so we have our main office there in Middletown, but we also have satellite offices in Hartford, Bridgeport, New Haven, because there are smaller facilities in each of those three cities. So, we prioritize representation of people who are currently residing in Uh, the state operated inpatient facilities. So you're talking Connecticut Valley Hospital, Whiting Forensic Hospital in Middletown, Capital Region, Mental Health Center in Hartford, Connecticut Mental Health Center in New Haven and Greater Bridgeport Community Mental Health Center in Bridgeport. Um, We protect people's rights under the patient's bill of rights. Um, We also represent people in the community when they're facing uh, discrimination or problems as a result of their mental health condition. You know somebody who's getting evicted from their housing for disability related behavior um where a request for a reasonable accommodation enables them to stay housed um we we do that um we have done other work in the past like representing people in social security cases uh and people who are facing discrimination in employment or education but we're in the middle of Undergoing a strategic plan or about to embark on a strategic planning process, um, so we'll we'll see where we go from here. But we,
0: yeah, no, no, that that is that is exciting, and oh no, no, that's not to to see that come together. I, um, you know, I over over the years, right. I have interacted with you on Twitter and and always appreciate your takes and uh, 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 being able to, via your tweets, be Sherpaed into uh, uh, disability Twitter, right? Um, um, And so seeing that today is election day, right? Um, I guess one question I have, right, is how do we get Uh, ableist rhetoric out of politics. Um, I feel most of our conversations around accommodations, uh, entitlements, uh, uh, and then when it comes to public safety with people with disabilities, um, we kind of throw them under the bus. And so like, how do we get the ableist rhetoric out of politics, right? Anytime something bad happens, we go to mental illness and kind of pigeonhole people, uh, despite the statistics saying that we're not the perpetrators of crimes, or mm-hmm. just the shame of like, well, you need to get back to work because COVID's not a thing anymore. It's like disabilities. Right. Access.
1: All those things. Um, I think that that is something that I think. All sides of the political spectrum really grapple with, um, because I, I have to say that ableism <laughs> does not seem to know partisanship, both sides. It's really, truly something that we see from the left. We see it from the right. And it's not correct, regardless of who it's aimed at. Um, you know, there's been a, there's been some really good conversations more recently as a result of the the Senate Uh, race in Pennsylvania and the fact that one of the candidates is recovering from a stroke um, and his opponent has seemed to at times attack him because of that. Um, He asked for accommodations during the interview of having closed captions and, and the framing of that entire conversation was incredibly frustrating because it really could have been an opportunity to demonstrate that look, this is what we do to help people communicate. And it fosters communication and opens up opportunity for people to participate in a process where even as they're recovering from a stroke, they are still able to answer the questions that are being asked. You know, like there could have been a whole, and I think that's sometimes the frustration of it is like, there actually is a possibility of talking about these issues differently um, and conceptualizing them differently. Um, And we have the same thing under the former person's administration. A lot of people um, would say um, things, you know, accusing the, the former president of being mentally ill or saying things about, you know, whether he was continent or incontinent. And it's like, just stop, all of you just stop. Like, can we please just talk about actual policy issues? Um, and instead of getting distracted, but by, by these things that, especially like in terms of social media seem entertaining or funny, but really aren't. Um, and- uh,
0: I have a hot take on that. I, uh, I, uh, I almost feel that uh, I, I laughed and I would say to people, um like people are willing to accept uh 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 uh, accommodations right but it's only to further biases right like i could have not imagined a president who would you know misread things or mispronounce things or would be like yeah I, all my briefings need to be verbal because like, I'm not really into like reading or I'm just going to watch. And so like, I would laugh sometimes because I'm like, oh no, those are accommodations, right? Like I might not agree with the politics, but it's to your point, the rhetoric of like how I'm like, no, I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem if the president got all of their information verbally. Like, if that's the way they best process, great. Why don't we do that?
1: You know what's really interesting? I think this is the first time I have ever heard somebody frame it that way about that person. And I'm not even sure that clicked for me until just now. You know, like people have different learning styles. Some people like to read 20 page things you know, and, and please have them very heavily footnoted, but then I think of, you know, and other people just learn differently, and if they take in and process the information, why, it's, because I saw, I think, like, people were fighting on Twitter yesterday, like, does, does listening to an audible book count as reading, it's like, yes, of course it does, it's like, you're still reading the book, you're just literally, processing the information and taking it in with your ears instead of your eyes. And I cannot believe we're still having this argument, but we are.
0: But that, I, I, in terms of, you know, um, you know, the bar situation, right? Cause I, I, I you know, I've had friends who, have had criminal histories or have self-disclosed criminal uh, uh, histories and then almost get penalized for their transparency. And and so people with disabilities, right? um, There are times where us self-disclosing then becomes the, uh, you know, an excuse for people to say, I'm scared of X danger and therefore it is okay to restrict uh, or or take away agency. And so like how, you know, if I made you emperor for the day, how would you, you know, help us promote to like take away this conversation of disabled people being inherently more aggressive or dangerous? I mean,
1: unfortunately it's like, It goes to show how very much pervasive these biased, stigmatizing misperception that these views are. Like they are embedded from history and we have a very hard time escaping them. And I think when you really look at how systemic ableism is very much wrapped up in systemic racism, And they very much go together um, and are inextricably intertwined Um, when we label everything through the this lens of production and and capitalism and how harm you know that people only have value if they're able to produce for whatever um. thinking back and especially because you mentioned, you know, criminal history or, you know, the history of incarceration as juxtaposed with disability. One of the things that I learned over the course of years that I didn't know and I think it's really important to, to for people to say when they didn't know things they they said things that were harmful or weren't good and you can learn and you can do better because i remember you know when i was applying to the bar and and they made me jump through extra hoops uh because i had disclosed a history of mental health treatment mm-hmm. i used to talk about the fact well i did not answer yes to any of the questions about criminal conduct and why are you punishing me for having a disability instead of saying why are we asking the questions that we're asking period um and what do we think we're what is the goal like what are we trying to accomplish but you know i've had it said to me well because you have a mental health condition you might be dangerous to your clients and i'm like what made you get from a to b And you know for people who who might have a criminal record to make the automatic assumption that they are don't have character and fitness to practice law at the present time, you know, and are punished continue to be punished forever for what they did at some other point in their life. Yet they have served their time and they've done everything else because they're not making that. Extra inquiry until you have graduated from law school, taken the bar exam, and passed the bar exam. So then the question becomes why are you trapping a person forever based on what they did on the worst day or days of their lives? Um well, I, I think
0: that's that's beautiful. I um you know I, I had um Uh, Andrea uh, Polenta, um, probably three, four months ago, and we were talking about, um, you know, self-expertise, right? And so up until talking to her, um, I had never heard of the concept of self-expertise, right? And so this idea that a person knows themselves, they know their bodies, Um, And that through that, they can, you know, um, create accommodations and have those things uh, to to be codified, right? And so, like, for me, my headphones, right? One day, I just put on noise-canceling headphones, and then it became a thing. And then I was like, cool, I'm going to get my passport picture with my headphones. And now, right, every time I go through customs, they're like, you can't do that. I'm like, cool, yes, I can, (laughs) right? And like being able to have that document allows me to have accommodations, right? Mm -hmm. Having my doctor write a letter and like codify and give it some legitimacy. So like, how can we better codify self expertise when we talk about social, emotional, mental health? Um, And especially with like the clients you have you know, how how do we allow those people to have more agency and ability to allow them to thrive?
1: Well, I think your question demonstrates the, the power of what's sometimes referred to as lived experience or lived expertise. You know, people, it, it is really my belief that people for about the, about the most law part, law they know what works for them. I think one Some of the of things that I've appreciated that I've seen be very different is that people who are who come and apply for jobs now, you know, who have literally grown up with the ADA always being the law. They know what works for them and they know what accommodations they've previously been granted. I graduated from law school in night uh, in '94, you know, when I in the ADA had just passed in in 1990, so it was very new. Like, I think some of some of my law school experience probably would be different if I was transplanted 20 years later. Um, so I, but at the same time, I also think law school is a place where doesn't do really a great job by most students with disabilities, which is really frustrating because especially you always think that the law, the legal profession, should understand that these that not doing better, um, you know, represents discrimination. And I think we should call that out when we do see it happening. Um, But I think when you recognize that people do have that inherent expertise because they have lived through something, you need to recognize that. And you need to create Space so that people can share with you what they know. I think the way a lot of psychiatry works is people just aren't listening to other people sometimes. And they're not displaying enough curiosity as to why people are maybe exhibiting a certain behavior. Like there's got to be more questions being asked and not just like, oh, we don't like that behavior, so we are going to control it, and we don't really care what that behavior does for you. You know, I think there are ways, and you know, I come to this from a very particular perspective. I'm a lawyer advocating for people's rights, um, which means, you know, and I I do think that if we could reduce the amount of involuntary or forced treatment, um we'd be better off. <laughs> you know, I, I think what we need to do is have people have that, which we don't have, a legally enforceable affirmative right to services and supports. That's not the way the system is oriented. What we have is a system that can very much rely on coercion and control. And it's because somebody in some professional capacity has decided we don't like this particular behavior and therefore this is what we can do to make sure that behavior doesn't happen instead of really trying to figure out well why are you doing that or alternatively what are the goals you're trying to reach because if you frame a system around the people who are doing the controlling instead of framing it around what are the goals of the people are being controlled. Um, there might be opportunities for people to actually work together instead of being adversarial with one another.
0: No, I I, I think that you know that that is such a a, a a treat to be able to you know encourage people and, and think about like cool right what are our goals right and what can we build. Uh, uh, around our goals, rather than, um, as you said, right, controlling for a particular outcome. Um, you know, 20% of all voters uh, in the U.S. identify as having a disability, whether it's physical or it's emotional, mental, right, and uh, Especially with people becoming older, right? like our bodies just naturally if you live longer, at some point, you're going to adopt some disability right mm-hmm. um, and so uh, how can we you know how can we uh, encourage policymakers to be uh, better in solidarity with people with disabilities right. Um, I have my thoughts, right? But like, what? Like, right? Like, you've done a lot of advocacy up in Hartford. So, like, you know, if you were talking to someone up there directly, like, how do we encourage those people to like participate and be part of the process?
1: Sure. Well, I think you know, one thing is, is like you just said, it's twenty percent of of voters are people with disabilities. You know. Reminding people, reminding elected officials that people with disabilities vote, you know, hundreds of people inside uh, Connecticut Valley Hospital and Whiting Forensic Hospital participated in the political process um, Hmm. and cast votes in this election. Um, And I think that's to the credit of Demas and the advocacy staff that really um, it, encourage people to be part of their communities by exercising their right to vote. I think you know all of us, regardless of where we're living, if we have the uh, the right to vote, we want to exercise that. Um, I think we have to hold, you know, elected officials accountable. Um, it is a challenge, you know, but they. Uh, they often make a lot of promises when they're they're running for office and you know are they following through on those you know are people making the policy decisions you want to see you know get engaged with the process um you know learn how the process works i think it's as someone who who is full disclosure registered lobbyist communicator lobbyist on behalf of clrp um and is in when the building was open, was used to being up there. It's a hard building, but it actually is our building. It is the people's house. You know, we put people in office, and you know, every two or four years we can make a, a choice that may or may not return them to that office. Um, and so you know, reaching out to those elected officials, but also at the same time remembering that elected officials are people. You know, um, some of the rhetoric that we see um, targeting elected officials um, isn't great. These are people who have willingly stepped up to serve and you're one of them, Justin. Um, You know, running for office is something I don't see myself ever doing. You know, it's not, not the part of the system where I think I can be most effective. Um, but I also seeing the way some of this plays out. It's just really ugly. Um, I do think there are times when even I rail against calls for civility, because I think it's people who have the most privilege can afford to be civil. Um, and it can't really be a matter of like, well, we don't like the way you're doing this. You know, maybe we'll we'll talk to you or let you know if you just do it the right way, which is the way we want you to do things. Um, I think there is absolutely place uh, for civil disobedience, for taking those direct actions, doing all of that. Um, but I think that you know people with disabilities should really know. It, it is not a lie to say your vote is your voice. You know, it can make a difference. Um, you absolutely have the right uh, to exercise it unless it's been specifically taken away. I think that's one thing that people don't necessarily know. You know, I think sometimes people with disabilities assume, well, if I've been labeled disabled, then I somehow I might lose my to right order. to vote. You don't, unless, you know, through, uh, specifically, even if you're under guardianship or under conservatorship, unless they specifically take away your right to vote, you still keep that right to vote. That's not the same in every state. In some states, if you're put under guardianship, you will automatically lose your right to vote. That is not the case in Connecticut. So.
0: Well, as we come to, it's all, I, I'm always saddened as we come towards the end, um, but, um you know, the, the two questions as we get ready to close out, you know, where can people find you personally? Where can people find you professionally? How do people connect with you?
1: Sure. To find me personally, at least until it all goes up in flames, um, on Twitter, at Con Connection. So it's at C-O-N-N, C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-O-N. Um, but you can find Connecticut Legal Rights Project at www dot C-L-R-P dot O-R-G. um our intake line is 877-402-2299 um and you know if you reach out to justin he'll know how to get in touch with me and you know we'll figure that out so
0: and you're you know as i always do a song to connect the work the conversation that we can remember right a mental jogger for us um what is your song right what's that song that we can connect with you on
1: i picked talking about a revolution by tracy chapman
0: that is definitely a a great song um uh my partner uh, uh, you know has sung that song to me and i've always been like oh wow Right? Like for the longest time, I did not know Tracy Chapman was Black. And so I had songs with her and I just didn't know. I was like, oh. <laughs> um, so thank you, thank you, thank you, uh, Kathy, for connecting with us uh, today on Just In Time Conversations, uh, WNH FM uh, 103.5. Uh, I am your host, Justin Farmer. Until uh, uh, we meet again let's continue to plant the seeds of change um uh, so we can grow together right Absolutely.
1: <laughs>